Blog Talk Radio.
the victim's neck, choked in any way, and we found out that at least 50% of all cases had no visible injury. So that was an eye-opener because I was like you, watching it on TV, and assumed that if you were assaulted in any way, you would have visible injuries. And what we found out is that that was not true. The other big finding is that this really requires um, medical training. You really do need to understand sort of like the medical science of what happens when someone is strangled. And what we're talking about is a lack of oxygen to the brain or a lack of oxygen. Essentially, your airflow or blood flow is being obstructed in some way. And when you obstruct the blood flow to the brain, that means a lack of oxygen to the brain. And if you cause someone to pass out, you're starting to have a life-threatening injury. The research now shows that if you pass out, if you urinate, defecate, if you have tiny little red spots called petechiae, or if your vision is impaired in any way, you have just suffered a life-threatening injury. And those cases were in our caseload, and we missed it. We just didn't know. So you would have women present, or the police officers would have women present, saying that they had been choked, and the investigating person would say, well, you know, let me see your neck, and they wouldn't see anything, and so they would just kind of, like, move on to other things. Is that what you're saying? Um, correct. Because no one received the medical training, we didn't have the laws or protocols in place, we didn't know what questions to ask, we didn't understand what we were dealing with, we started to focus on other things, and including the victim, because I think the victims didn't understand it either. So everybody would be focused on a bruise or a black eye, swelling, things that they can see and things that they could feel. Uh, but sometimes victims would feel like they've had a hoarse throat but didn't think that that was significant enough to share with anyone, and we didn't know what questions to ask. And if you um, were strangled to the point where you urinated or defecated, that's extremely embarrassing. That's probably the last thing you're going to tell anybody that happened. So unless an officer saw it and documented it uh, spontaneously in the report, it was just missed. Was there any particular training with officers of what to look for when they approach a scene of, of supposed domestic violence? Well, that's when I went on the hunt for. I said, okay, well, let's fix this and let's find out who has a training on how to identify, document, and prosecute strangulation cases. And to my shock and horror, no one was doing it. I called our state um, organization that was responsible for training both police officers and prosecutors. They didn't have anything. So then I went to the national organizations for police officers and also prosecutors. They didn't have anything. And then I just now started got started getting really curious and determined to find out, well, who knows something about this? And so it was a series of phone calls to ER docs, pathologists, homicide detectives, forensic nurses, just kept asking, asking a lot of questions, and then ultimately determined that there wasn't anything available. And then our team put together the training that we felt was needed after we did our research and gathered all of our information. Ultimately, what we learned in our study of 300 cases ended up being published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Okay, why would somebody strangle? Why would that why was would a, That's a good question, and that was one of our questions. And we realized there was two things. One, you intended to kill someone. Killing someone by strangling them is very effective. The neck is extremely vulnerable, and if you look at any military protocols, on hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, strangling someone, especially blocking the blood flow to the brain, is very effective, quick, easy, doesn't leave a lot of evidence, and you can do that uh, pretty quietly as well. But the other reason is to control. At the heart of a domestic violence case, it's about power and control. And now I am calling strangulation the last warning shot. Because if you think about it in the big picture, it's an abuser's way to say that I can kill you at any time, whatever I want. I can take you to your last breath. And I own you. I control you. And if you don't do what I say, I will kill you.
And so victims of domestic uh, violence. Yeah, in a study by Amy Pritchard and and, uh, colleagues uh, called Non-Fatal Strangulation as Part of Domestic Violence, a review of the research, um, she stated that uh, uh, strangulation is essentially a live demonstration of power and control over another individual's life or death. The act of strangulation demonstrates to a victim that the perpetrator can end their life whenever he or she chooses. And I think that's well said. And I agree totally with that, and that was our experience. So then that becomes a very interesting issue for police and prosecutors. So if it's about power and control, then how do we prove a crime? And that was the other major issue at the time of our study, is that our laws never spelled out strangulation. And so as a result of the lack of laws that we had at the time, uh, these cases would fall sometimes under a simple battery because of the lack of visible injuries. You can prove an assault, but you couldn't prove that this was a great bodily injury because the evidence hadn't been gathered. We didn't have the expertise to understand it. So that was another reason it was missed. But when it comes to power and control, what we had to figure out is, did an assault did occur, and what did they intend to do? And so we learned that we had to come up with certain questions. We had to look at the history. We needed to know what was said before the assault, during the assault, and after the assault. And what did the victim think was going to happen? And when we started to ask those questions, we also learned that there were death threats accompanied in most of the cases, and the victim thought she was going to die. So that's how we started to build our cases to show that there was a serious assault that occurred as opposed to a simple assault like pushing somebody or punching somebody. But when you go for the throat and we know that the neck is vulnerable and you cause somebody to pass out, that means you have applied pressure, continuous pressure to the neck for at least 10 seconds. And then that causes somebody to pass out. And if you continue to apply pressure for another 15 seconds, that usually means that you're going to have uh, urination. And if you continue to apply pressure, you've got defecation. And when those things happen, a victim is within seconds of death. What do you know? You know what? I'm negligent here. Let me give out our phone number, and the chat line is open. If you have a question or comment that you want to put into the, the chat line, I'm, I'm keeping a monitor on it. Uh, if you'd like to call in and talk about this situation with Gail, the number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Give us a call. Um, I know in uh, posting information about this program, a lot of people have experience both as victims and as uh, advocates and people who work with this particular field. Gail, why? You know, it never ceases to amaze me how perpetrators can feel so safe doing things like this. If I, I mean, I, I can't imagine a situation under which I would try and throttle somebody by the neck, but, but if I did, I, I can only imagine that if that person passed out, I would be so terrified that I would immediately back off. Even if you hated the person, you would have that feeling of, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, what did I do to this person? What is it about perpetrators that lets them do this not just once, but over and over and over again? Or is that well, a whole different show? <laughs> it could it could be a show in and of itself, and you probably bring need to bring in some other experts. But from what I have learned, is that not only is it about power and control, it's also about lack of accountability. So in San Diego and in most jurisdictions across the United States, we have what's called pro-arrest policies. So if a victim does call. 911 and the police respond, or let's say a neighbor calls 911 and the police respond, the officers are going to investigate the case. They're going to separate the parties, ask each party what happened, and they're going to try to determine if the elements of a crime exist. And if they believe that there's probable cause to arrest on a felony, they will. 
The problem with strangulation, if that's the only crime that had occurred, is that there's no visible injuries in most of the cases. So if you don't have visible injuries and you don't feel like you've met the elements of a particular crime, it is easy to escape accountability. And uh, and one of the studies that has come out recently, that's exactly what victims believed were happening, is that they were getting away with essentially attempted murder because they didn't have the visible injuries. And victims also didn't understand what was happening to them. They didn't understand how lethal the situation was. They didn't understand that they were suffering an anoxic brain injury. They certainly didn't understand, and I think many don't today, that they could be suffering some long-term health consequences. And now we also know that you can have delayed death within 24, 36, 72 hours. I've even seen a case where a victim died two weeks after being strangled. So we, we well, missed it because of the lack. more about that as, as we go along. But right now I want to focus more on, you know, if someone calls the police, um, uh, what what happens at that point? And one of the articles that you wrote, you indicated that the, the you, you said that the the police officer, for example, who responds to the scene, um, that the whole thing hinges on the collection of evidence to prove that there was strangulation, even if the victim doesn't say so. What kind of evidence can be collected to prove strangulation if the victim doesn't say, well, there was strangulation, or if there are no marks? Well, the good news now is that our police officers are being trained uh, to look for the signs and symptoms of strangulation. So, for example, let's say a victim did... um, get strangled to the point of unconsciousness and she urinated or defecated. One of the first things most victims do will change their clothes and or take a shower. So one of the questions they can ask is, were these the clothes that you were wearing at the time that you were assaulted? And if the answer is no, that leads then an investigator to ask another series of questions to find out why and to find out more. If an officer then determines that somebody may have urinated or defecated, then that's going to naturally kick off some questions related to strangulation. And they are now trained to ask, did anybody grab your neck in any way? They're also looking for like a rash to the face. It could be tiny little red spots. So they can ask questions about that. They can look around the neck. Now they're being trained to look not only around the neck, but to pull the hair up, to look behind the ear. You can find evidence behind the ear, in the ear canal, and listening to their voice. Uh, Many victims will have a raspy or hoarse voice. They can start um, having, where they start to swallow repeatedly, or they're having difficulty swallowing. Um, And that's another clue that officers can take a look at. They could be holding their neck, kind of looks like they might be having difficulty breathing or pain to the neck or throat area, like they might have a sore throat. And once they start piecing all that together, that will help the investigation. The other thing that happens when you're strangled is you having a lack of memory. So a victim may say, you know, I don't remember everything. I remember we started the argument in the kitchen, and then next thing I know, I'm in the bedroom or I'm on the floor, and I can't tell you what happened in between. That lack of memory is another clue that someone may have been strangled because a lack of blood flow to the brain means that the brain is not working. And if the brain is not working, it's also not recording. In the brain, we have what's called the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is responsible for essentially recording information and filing it away. So if the blood flow has been obstructed, that means you're not going to record all that information, and the victim will have lapse in memory, or there will be um, a lapse in location or a change in location. Those are clues that our officers and prosecutors and others are being trained to ask, and now we're also more sensitive to ask about it, even if a victim doesn't report it. When you were, excuse me, when you're talking about the officers being trained to to look for signs that they perhaps were not trying to look for before, I also noticed the the vocabulary. Um, When we started this conversation, you were talking choked, choked. Now we're saying strangulation. What's the significance of, of using those two words? 
Well, we believe in our advisors that we've been working with since the beginning, we believe that we needed to change our vocabulary. Victims will always use, he choked me, he choked me, he choked me. But if you think about it, when you're choking, it usually means there's something inside your throat. There's an obstruction, so you are accidentally choking on food or something else. But strangulation is very intentional. They know exactly what they're doing. And so we wanted to change the terminology in order to call it what it is, let everyone start to become more aware of how lethal and serious this is, and to treat it in a very serious way. Okay. And I believe, was it, yes, in, in an article that you wrote, you indicated that um, in Minnesota, uh, a study was done there that uh, the difference, if the officers used the word strangled instead of choked, there were more cases prosecuted as felonies. That's correct. Really we're, interesting. You know, really it is interesting. very interesting because you have to wonder, okay, what's it going to take for um, the whole system to take strangulation cases seriously? And obviously training is a piece of it, new laws, new protocols, and even how you write up a police report is significant. So we have developed tools for police officers, not only to what questions to ask, what injuries to look for, but we can also give them sample ways to write up a police report. So they can talk about how serious and lethal strangulation can be, that they have received training about the signs and symptoms, and as part of their investigation, they've identified the following things, all consistent with strangulation. That one paragraph is very powerful compared to what we saw um, in our original study. I was lucky to get a sentence that said, he choked her, and that was it. There was no description as to the method. There was no uh, questioning if the victim had been strangled multiple times, which now we know in some incidents are strangled repeatedly. To me, in some cases, it's like torture. They're taking her right to the point of that last breath, watching her pass out, watching her body go limp, and usually begging for her life to stay alive or the fear in her eyes. I can only imagine what a victim is going through. And then they do it over and over again, sometimes using different methods. And that's how you pull the case together. Because usually you'll hear that it didn't happen. That's the first thing batterers will say, it didn't happen. After that, then they say, well, I was just defending myself, protecting myself. And Or if you see any injuries on her neck, you know, they were self-inflicted and she did it to herself just to get me in trouble. Or the other thing that I've heard, she's consented to it as part of some sort of um, relationship, sexual relationship. You know, I remember years ago, years, years ago, many years ago, I was a young girl and living in near Cleveland, Ohio, and there was a professor at one of the universities in Cleveland who was uh, being tried for murder um, because his wife was um, uh, strangled. Actually, she she was... Um, dangling out a window on a noose, and um, his contention was that they—he they, originally said that she had committed suicide, and um, then they decided that that wasn't the case. So then he said, "Well, it was part of sex games that they were having sex games." And I remember as a young girl thinking, "Really? I mean, if somebody came to me and said, here, here's a noose, throw it around your neck and hang out the window, you're going to love this,' I think." I think I would have been suspicious about that. I can't believe that anybody would have actually bought that. Um, so, you know, when people talk about using these kinds of defenses, I mean, really, does anybody actually buy all of that stuff? Well, they're hoping that somebody will buy into it. And when it comes to a ligature, very few cases, and now now we're going to be talking about autoerotic asphyxia, in the research, 99% of the time, it's men who engage in autoerotic asphyxia. So it's a guy thing, not a gal thing. So that's one. And then two, the law does not accept uh, consent to anything that could potentially kill you. So even though you may say you engaged into it, you still have to analyze what really went on. 
there are some communities that will engage in this, but even in those communities, they have contracts, they have safe words. Uh, it's not about pain, it's about pleasure, and if you exceed what you've agreed to, you're essentially off the island because this is very deadly. And the law does not recognize it as a legal defense and by matter of public policy. Um, a recent case came out yet again saying the same thing. We do not want to be in a position legally to even encourage this behavior because it is so dangerous and so lethal. Yeah. What is, I think that one of the things that struck me when I was, you know, putting together this idea and, and, and starting to contact you was there is so much information out there right now, if we choose to, to pay attention to it, about domestic violence. But strangulation has only recently, uh, and, and by that I mean last couple of years or so, really come to the forefront as far as trainings for professionals and things. What was the turning point where, uh, you know, the the domestic violence community, if you will, started to recognize this as a real severe threat and one that merited investigation and training and prosecution? That's a very good question. I've thought about that myself. I think it's been slow and steady because we've been providing this training to not only California nationally and around the world since 1995, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time to get this information out. What ends up helping to increase the awareness is the changes of the law, and now we have 39 states that have passed felony strangulation laws. So when a new law passes, that means statewide everybody's going to get notified of the new criminal laws, and then hopefully they're developing implementation plans to figure out how they're going to implement it. I think that has been extremely helpful. I think national organizations now recognize it. The International Association of Chiefs of Police um, back in December of 2014 actually passed a resolution to all of their members, and literally they have millions, to say that strangulation is serious. Currently, the International Association of Forensic Nurses has put together a strangulation committee, uh, experts who are focusing on this. They, they too, will be passing um, a proclamation or resolution or a special position paper, how they call it in their world, and that will be going we're seeing uh, internationally, too, Australia and New Zealand just passed a strangulation law. Each time these laws are passed, there's usually a hearing, uh, testimony, a lot of information is gathered. When we passed a, a federal strangulation and suffocation law through the Violence Against Women Act of 2013, the same thing happened there where testimony and briefs were submitted. And the recommendation now for a strangulation case is 10 years. Sometimes it can even be higher depending on your law in that particular state. I also believe, thanks to you and others, when you get the media involved and the media starts to write about it, that helps a lot in so many ways, not only to educate the public, but to educate victims about the danger. We've also published a lot more articles in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, for example, and in many other publications. And so the more you write about it, the more you talk about it, the more you train helps. And I think the last one for us is that when we received a grant from uh, the Office on the Violence Against Women to launch our training institute on strangulation prevention, that really helped because the idea of that institute was to multiply was to multiply our capacity, our expertise. We wanted to have teams all across California and across the United States be able to go into their community, be their local experts, provide that training, change protocols, be the change agent, and also testify in court as experts. So we encourage teams to come to our training. And by a team, I mean we encourage a multidisciplinary team, including a police officer, a prosecutor, a medical professional, and at least an advocate. So at least the four of them can go back into their communities and provide their training to their own groups. And we're just seeing some amazing best practices come out, a lot of great advocacy. Um, we've also written a couple of books now on the investigation documentation 
litigation, prosecution, and advocacy of strangulation cases. We're working with the National Advocacy Center to provide training. Uh, we host a four-day advanced course now about three to four times a year. And I believe the top experts, the most passionate experts, uh, and professionals come to that training. They're the ones that I call, they get it. They are gladiators. They are change agents. And they're going to go back, and they have been going back and making an amazing difference in their community. Well, and you mentioned uh, the professionals that I was particularly interested in, obviously police as first responders, but also the medical profession, because in the reading that I did, it seems to um, it, a lot of potential prosecution, a lot of pre- potential prevention and punishment, if you will, hen- hinges on medical reports. And if you're going to an emergency room or the victim is being taken to a hospital or a facility that isn't trained, that doesn't know uh, to look for these things, and things are missed in those medical reports, it could just signify that signal that, that nothing is going to be happening down the road as far as prevention or prosecution. Um, what kind of headway uh, has the medical profession made in addressing strangulation in victims that they see? Well, that is a very good question uh, because I think that was an oversight on our part because initially we thought we could solve the problem by just training the police officers to do a better job. In our study, we found out of 300 cases, only 3% of the victims sought medical attention. And I naturally assumed that doctors would and nurses and paramedics would have received this training, and we were just the ones that didn't receive this training. But when I looked at those medical reports when victim actually sought medical attention for strangulation, uh, the police reports were actually better than the medical reports. And as I found and talked to emergency room physicians, and Dr. George McLean was one of the first ones I talked to, he said, Gail, even though I'm an expert in emergency medicine, we have not been trained on the, the, the questions we need to ask, the significance of a strangulation case, how do you document it? Um, the only question I knew to ask before you even called me was, does your neck hurt? And so having the articles published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine was extremely important, and it was Dr. Ellen Tolliver who encouraged us to do so. Then now, um, because of our partnership with the International Association of Forensic Nurses, our advisors that are part of the uh, American College of Emergency Physicians, we have more and more doctors and nurses and paramedics that are are getting this training, and they're now sharing this training with their colleagues. Well, and that's nothing to be sneezed at. I mean, I know that just in talking with uh, my own family physician saying, you know, gee, I noticed that, you know, nobody's ever asked me whether anybody, you know, whether I, any of the questions pertaining to whether or not I have experienced domestic violence when I've come into the office. And um, I said, you know, there are all sorts of ways to ask those questions. And she said, yes. And I, I love this woman. I, I, I admired her greatly. Um, but she said, yes, you're right. She said, the problem is that if we ask the question and we get the answers, then we're going to have to do something about it. And we don't have the time or the resources to do anything about it. Wow, and that's heartbreaking. I, I know. I know. Um, and so, but it did, however, open up for me an understanding of, you know, we as a culture, I think, as as individuals, we think, well, if you get the training, then you can answer that, you can do that, da, da, da. but we lose lose sight of the fact that whatever industry, whether it's police or or, or medical or, you know, we lose sight of the fact that they're not just sitting around waiting to learn more information that they can act on. They have things that they have to do and uh, things that they have to, you know. So, I mean, it's not just a motivational issue. It's also a a time constraints, job description constraints, all that kind of stuff. How does the medical profession work around that? It sounds like the people you've spoken to are very receptive to, yes, okay, here's a problem. Let's figure out how to address it, as opposed to having that little kind of innate resistance of, oh, my gosh, more work for me to do. How am I going to do that? How am I going to fit that in? And that's another very good question. And um, what I'm seeing is, especially if, if you encourage people to go to training together, so 
also um, a doctor, uh, prosecutor, police officer, an advocate from your community. They get the training together. We challenge them to develop an implementation plan to work together, and great things are happening. So the um, national coalitions are getting involved, whether it's domestic violence or sexual assault. They're developing protocols on what doctors can do. Some states have medical mandated reporting that if you identify a victim of domestic violence, you must report it. And then if you have teams in place, then all they really need to do is work with their hospital. And many hospitals are working with local advocates and they're developing uh, response teams to be able to deal with this. So asking the question triggers a response, and it triggers a team of professionals who are experts. So we're not asking doctors to be an expert in advocacy. We're just asking them to ask the questions and connect the victim to possibly a social worker at the hospital, a hospital advocate. We're seeing a lot more um, advocates working at the hospital. We're seeing uh, new technology being used to make referrals from the hospital to a local family justice center or to a to the local domestic violence or sexual assault program. We've got best practices that are being developed in Maricopa, Arizona. We're seeing it in Louisville, Kentucky. We're now starting to see domestic violence response teams on strangulation specifically where teams are coming together to try to figure this out, to figure out how do we connect all the dots so this way nobody falls through the cracks. Sure. Um, the, the whole idea of mandated reporting, though, brings up a whole, you know, that that, that also is another show. Um, because sometimes, I think, in our best efforts, we, we sometimes come up with ideas that might actually put some people at more risk. I don't know. That's just my, my gut feeling about the mandated reporting. But that's, uh, as I said, that that's, a, that's another show. Um, you also mentioned the educating of victims, and I think that is so crucial. I know that a lot of victims don't even – I've spoken with, with survivors of domestic violence who didn't even realize that they had experienced domestic violence. They just knew that they felt threatened they knew, because no one was, was ever hit. And, of course, you know, we've done a wonderful job in our country especially and in the world probably of equating, you know, it's not okay to hit people. Um, you know, it's not okay to hit your spouse. It's not okay to beat somebody up or punch them in the eye. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who'd say, yeah, that, well, that's acceptable. But there are all sorts of other forms of abuse that some people are a little iffy about and that we maybe don't don't recognize. And I know I've spoken with a number of survivors who actually went through horrible abuse but didn't know that it was abuse, didn't know it was domestic violence. So this whole idea of educating victims, you know, wow, great, but how do you do that? Oh, you reach out to the advocates who are working with victims. Uh, so, for example, if a victim is, calls the police and she's on the criminal justice side and a case might be going through the criminal justice system, uh, many organizations today have victim witness advocates. So educating those professionals about strangulation and developing brochures, which our organization has done, is to develop a brochure that all professionals can give to victims, whether you're in the hospital, you're in the courthouse, you're a police officer, you're a paramedic. And if you go to our website at strangulationtraininginstitute.com, you will see many of those tools that we have developed. And on the community side, let's say if a victim doesn't call the police, but she calls a hotline. So educating hotline workers, advocates that might be at a shelter. Our, our friends in Bakersfield have now uh, changed their screening tool to include strangulation as part of one of the questions they will ask when a victim is seeking to enter a shelter. So if she had been recently assaulted and or strangled, they're now starting to ask about those signs and symptoms and trying to assess whether she needs to go to the hospital first before they even admit her into the shelter, which I think is brilliant because now they're assessing it, they're trying to get medical attention, 
They're getting information now to the hospitals. We've developed new tools to put medical providers on notice that a victim has been strangled and that the recommended standard of care is A, B, and C. So maybe you didn't read all the journals of emergency medicine that you should have, but here's a little quick cheat sheet that you should know about. And we're giving those out to professionals and we're giving them out to victims. So if they start to feel worse after the assault and having they might have difficulty breathing or having headaches and the sore throat is getting worse and they can't swallow, we're recommending don't wait, pay attention to those things and get back or go to the hospital. Um, so, And then when you talk to victims who are now being educated by professionals and advocates, they're having like this, oh my gosh, epiphany moment saying, I did not know. I wish somebody would have told me sooner. Had I known that each and every time he was doing that, he was potentially causing a a near-death experience or could have killed me, but at the very least, I'm suffering an anoxic brain injury. Oh, my gosh, I would have left a lot sooner had I known. Hmm. Um, Let's talk about some of those health consequences because there are some immediate health consequences, but then there are some long-term health consequences. Let's talk about the immediate health consequences for a strangulation victim. What what are we looking at? I mean, you've already talked about petechia, the the ruptured little vessels, um, and you've talked about the sore throat. Um, what What are some of those other immediate consequences of strangulation? Well, the immediate one is if you do lose consciousness, that means you've just suffered an anoxic brain injury. And depending on how many seconds and what part of the brain was impacted, it could be minor to severe. It's like any kind of traumatic brain injury. Any kind of brain injury, like a concussion, a lack of oxygen to the brain, um, blunt, somebody is uh, hitting somebody in the head with a hammer or a bat, uh, uh, experts are going to try to assess the level of damage that was done essentially to the brain. So what you have suffered at, at the very least is a traumatic brain injury. The amount of brain injury will depend on the lack of oxygen. But what we have is some people die as a result of strangulation, and you can die as a result of strangulation under two minutes. We've had some reported cases that was less than a minute. If you don't have immediate death, you can have long-term consequences where people have been in a coma, people are in a vegetative state, they may have brain death, Um, but their heart is still alive, so the only way you can keep them alive is on a um, ventilator. And then what we've also seen is that you can have damage to your carotid arteries. It's called a carotid dissection. So you can have a small tear as a result of the assault that just happened on you, and then later you can have a stroke and die. So you can have strokes. We have seen people who have died as a result of the swelling to their neck. That just becomes more progressive. We have seen people that um, the delayed death has been two weeks later. We've seen folks with traumatic brain injury where they have to go on long-term disability because they can no longer track information. Um, things like uh, daily activities. We've, we've seen one case where a victim would leave her house and she couldn't remember how to get back to her house. I was working with a victim who was a legal secretary and she just couldn't track things anymore. So there is a level of brain damage that occurs to victims who are strangled. And we know that if you have that urination, defecation, loss of consciousness, petechiae, or vision changes, the research now clearly shows you have suffered a life-threatening injury. Are there, we, we like, we try as a, as a society to make services available to victims of, of um, um, domestic violence, to victims of this kind of an assault, but are there any resources specific to strangulation? that you're aware of. When you say resources, I, I, we have a lot or, of resources. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I mean, gosh, I mean, if you've had some sort of brain injury, um, if it happens because of work, you get some sort of compensation. You could get disability. You could get something like that. What if it happens at the hands of of, of someone else? Are there any 
is there anything that we can do or that we are doing in areas of this country um, to help plug these victims into resources that you're aware of? Okay. Uh, uh, The answer is yes, and it's also very slow. Um, We have developed a strangulation brochure that helps victims understand what they're going through. We have developed tools for professionals to understand what a victim is going through. Our most recent tool is called a strangulation assessment card, which helps police and paramedics determine when you're dealing with a life-threatening injury and to get the victim to the hospital. That tool also gives an advisal to victims as to what occurred and also their rights. If you are a victim of a crime, you are entitled to compensation. So if you end up incurring um, expenses related to the assault, you can be reimbursed. Prosecutors can also ask for restitution in the court. Um, And then, of course, we've provided notice to the medical provider as to the standard of care, hopefully that they will do a CAT scan and preferably, preferably an MRI. Um, What I know still today is that the best way to document a strangulation case is an autopsy, and that's an extreme measure, and obviously we don't want that ever to happen, but absent an autopsy, the MRI is the sort of gold standard. The problem with an MRI is that it costs money. When you compare it to a CAT scan, which is going to be about 200 bucks, to an MRI, which is about 2000 um, the emergency room is going to be reluctant to adopt new protocols because it's going to come down to money. Who is going to pay for the MRI? If she has insurance, I think we stand a better chance, but we're now educating state organizations that are responsible for victim compensation to include the MRI as a compensation for a victim of a crime. We are also developing new assessment tools that once you know a victim is strangled or has been strangled, then what tools are out there that we can assess what happened to them? Because if we can assess that they suffered a traumatic brain injury, then once you assess it, you can diagnose it, and then once you diagnose it, then you can treat it. But right now, I think the biggest hole in this whole system is the lack of those assessments of a brain injury, diagnosis, referral, and treatment. Okay. All right, so we talked about some of the immediate consequences of of having been choked, but there are long-term consequences. What are some of those? Well, the long-term consequences go to health, um, overall health. Victims who are just victims of domestic violence will have a long list of long-term consequences related to Um, domestic violence, and then, of course, the long-term consequences of strangulation um, has to do with those strokes that I've talked about earlier. A stroke can occur years after you've been strangled as a result of a carotid dissection. Um, Also, you can have uh, at what they call if okay, you, let me interrupt it, you right there because I just okay. had this this thought. I was reading actually an an article that you wrote about a, a particular woman who thirty years after she was choked um was basically going to die because of stroke uh as a result of that. Any chance if that actually happened, even if it was thirty years later, they could go back and hold that um uh perpetrator responsible and charge him with uh um uh, murder? That's a very good question, and I think it's going to be hard to prove uh, unless you have uh, really documented everything along the way extremely well because, uh, you know, people are subject to strokes. Um, the, The challenge, I think, with strokes is that right now, for the most part, when you walk into a hospital and you've suffered a stroke, They are not routinely asking you, have you recently been strangled or have you ever been strangled before? They never tied the connection of strokes to a prior strangulation. So if that hasn't been like the routine standard of care or or protocol to ask about that, you're probably going to have a lack of documentation and it's going to be really hard for you to prove a crime. However... Um, I believe you could still be able to build your case for a long-term disability for a victim who might be struggling with some um, being able to just manage day-to-day activities. Well, that was my other question, uh, is that, you know, I mean, 
there clearly, you know, if you've had, especially if you've had some sort of brain injury, um, day-to-day activities are probably, you're going to be at a real disadvantage. Um, and so does this qualify, would this qualify for some sort of, uh, you know, assistance um, that, that you're aware of? Hmm. I believe And I so. suppose that also. Yeah, that, that that also depends on the motivation and the and the the um, uh, dedication of the people in any particular geographic area, I guess, because you know it's hard to every every area, every state has its own um, way that they do things, and sometimes they're different and more liberal in one area than another as far as helping people in these situations. Gail, what about other long-term effects besides stroke? Well. Uh... The good news is is that we have an amazing group of experts on our team. And I just want to uh, compliment our medical advisory team. Uh, most recently, Dr. Bill Smock, with uh, the other doctors that we are working with, put together a very impressive PowerPoint on the top 25 medical consequences resulting from strangulation and any kind of pressure restraint to the neck. So it's very detailed, not only about the acute death, delayed death, the strokes, um, also how your brain can swell, damage to the hippocampus. Uh, We've heard a lot of things happening with CTE for NFL players and traumatic brain injuries. We know that some victims can have seizures. They may have never had problems with seizures before. Most recently, we've had a focus group with our survivors about strangulation, and they themselves identified uh, problems with their thyroid, which I never heard of. And then we quickly um, called our team of doctors, including Dr. Bill Smock, and sure enough, there it was, that you can have some life-threatening symptoms related to damage to your thyroid, what they call a thyroid storm. We also know that some victims have suffered vocal cord paralysis. Some victims have even reported having their um, hyoid bone fractured, so unless they treat it surgically, they may have trouble swallowing uh, for long periods of time. the, The challenge that we have is that victims report things anecdotally, and unless it gets published in a research article, it's as if it doesn't exist. So that's the kind of things that we are dealing with. We're also trying to reach out to new experts that haven't been part of our team, like the ENT specialist. So what is going on inside the throat? How do you even examine inside the throat and evaluate that? We've had some people report that they've had ringing in the ears for long periods of time, which can uh, really be difficult. They've um, and some of you have reported losing the ability to hear. We now know that some kids that we're now tracking, we're trying to create um, a national way, uh, a reporting system, so as professional to professional as they're handling these cases and before it even gets published in any kind of article to tell us about some of the things that they're seeing, victims are seeing. We had a little boy who was strangled and he lost his eyesight and he's paralyzed. So there are just devastating consequences of strangulation. An amazing phenomenon and um Thank you, thank you. You know, for for bringing that, doing your part of bringing that to uh, our attention, and to, so that we can treat it. The other thing that crosses my mind is when you're talking about all these long-term consequences. Is all of those have to have an effect on the way a woman can earn a living and support herself? Absolutely. So uh, I just think that of we're the trauma at, alone. Yeah. So I suspect we're looking at some. You know, the research. Uh, the, at least I haven't seen any done on that. But it, I, I suspect that we're probably looking at some pretty devastating economic consequences of strangulation as well. That's my best guess. Um, I wanted to uh, uh, bring to you or point out to you um, that uh, the study by Amy Pritchard. I don't. I'm, I suspect you're familiar with it. Non-fatal strangulation as part of domestic violence. A review of the research. Have you yes, seen that? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, She talks a little bit about legal research. Can you just very briefly talk about that, the legal response to strangulation? Is that all pivotal upon the police response or the first responder um, reports, or is there been a change in the actual legal response to strangulation? 
Well, I, uh, in her article, she, she does refer to the criminal justice legal response to this. And uh, what she's referring to is the work that has been done that kind of was launched by our study in 1995. And so it was that study that brought awareness to the legal community about the inability to truly understand the seriousness of strangulation. And so the legal response has been the passing of these laws. We've had some research on the impact of these laws, but not much. Minnesota took um, and tried to analyze what was happening with cases now being prosecuted under their new crime of felony strangulation. And what they saw is that it did have an impact, but the results can be inconsistent if not everybody is receiving the same training, learning how to write these reports, learning how to investigate, because after you learn how to investigate, prosecutors need to learn how to prosecute these cases, which means you usually need a medical expert to testify. And if the medical community is not trained, they're not going to feel comfortable to testify. So you really have to identify the medical potential medical experts and uh, develop them as experts in court. And then, of course, judges. Judges need to have this training as well because if they don't receive this training, they're going to minimize the strangulation case in front of them because it's just going to look like tiny little red spots. And unless somebody explains that it's petechia and a life-threatening injury, they're going to go, what's the big deal? And then probation officers who are involved in criminal cases are making recommendations to judges about what to do. And then, of course, victims are developing, hopefully, with the help of advocates, victim impact statements. And if nobody asks them, how has this changed your life, you're not going to know that they might be having nightmares, constant headaches, not sleeping at night, that they have um, lots of anxiety that they haven't been able to go back to work. Uh, I talk to victims all the time. In fact, I just did a focus group this week in Northern California, and I asked them, how has the uh, domestic violence impacted your life? And to a person, they were traumatized. They were going to counseling. They were a changed person completely. Some of them lost their jobs. A lot of them ended up being homeless for a certain period of time. Domestic violence and strangulation and stalking and sexual assault and, and most victims end up seeing and experiencing one thing or another, sometimes uh, all of it has devastating consequences. And then we have an even, which is another story about the impact of children who witness domestic violence. Yeah, well, and that's also another whole other show. Um, Gail, you have really enlightened me about the issue of strangulation, and I, I hope our listeners have also uh, been enlightened. When you talk about the impact of, of domestic violence, and since so much of domestic violence also includes strangulation, didn't, didn't one of the studies show as much as 60% of domestic violence was involved strangulation at some point? I think that's what I read. Um, I always believe that, you know, you look at homelessness, you look at... Um, uh, um, poverty, you look at so many of these social issues that we're trying to tackle, and if you actually peel them back and look even further, I suspect that in most of these cases, you're going to find domestic violence underneath every all of it. I really do believe that. I don't have documentation for it, but I believe it. Um, and I think that each of these pieces, such as strangulation, you know, the more we learn about it, the more it's going to help us in dealing with that underlying cause of domestic violence. Gail, really quickly, if uh, someone would like more resources, I know that you can you can direct us. Where would where would we go for more information about strangulation in particular and domestic violence in general? Well, thank you. I would encourage people to go visit our website at strangulationtraininginstitute.com. Um, on our website, you'll find a lot of information for professionals and also survivors. And I think if you're working with a victim who's been strangled, there are some great tools out there to assess their level of danger. They're generally called risk assessment tools, many of which have the origins from Dr. Jackie Campbell and the work that she has done related to health consequences, the risk of death. And those tools are important to all professionals. They even now have an app for that. 
So if there's any survivor that's listening to this, is uh, go online, uh, uh, Google domestic violence, Google risk assessment, um, the signs of, of an uh, unhealthy relationship. And generally, if you just start to look, you will be able to find some local resources to help you. Thank you so much. And, you know, knowledge is power. Um, It may not change the physical consequences you have uh, from something like this, but knowing what's happening with you, but knowing what's out there, that therein lies the power, shall we say. Gail, you've been uh, uh, a tremendous resource for us. Thank you much. Um, And again, you can go to the website after the show with it about 10 minutes after we go off the air live. It will be available on the archive. Anybody can access it at any time. The information is out there for any and all to use. And um, I I hope that uh, people do use this information. Again, the uh, resources that Gail offer, the webpage, great. Go to it as much as you can. I try to end the show with a quote. Today, the quote Um, is from uh, a research study with multiple authors, so I will just read it to you. Strangulation is a unique and particularly gendered form of non-fatal intimate partner violence affecting ten times as many women as men. It's a women's problem. It's a women's issue. It's a social problem. Let's get out there and do what we can to um, uh, make a difference especially in the area of domestic violence and strangulation. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Back again next week. Thank you, Heather.